We're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 this morning. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I invite you to turn there. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. As usual, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let us pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as it goes into our lives this morning, that it would penetrate our hearts and lives, and that it would speak to us, Lord, in a mighty and a profound way this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Administration is not one of my spiritual gifts. I am terrible at administration, so trust me, I didn't plan this sermon so far in advance to line it up with this stage like a cloud of witnesses. So that I, I cannot plan that far in advance. Okay, so uh, just so you know that this was not uh, planned, but uh, we have this the stadium feel here, which just so happens to go along with the message this morning. I started running when I was a teenager. The reason I started running cross-country is because uh, I wanted to get in shape for wrestling. Um, I loved wrestling. That was my sport. It's something I enjoyed doing, and that was really my only motivation. So I I didn't take cross-country really that seriously. Um, It's just something I like to do to get in shape and happened to be so-so at it. Over the course of my life, I've ran a lot of miles for training as well as in races. I had a goal to run a marathon by the time I was 40 years old. Most of you know I was able to run a marathon a few years back, and currently I run five miles a day. Some of you have ran before. Some of you have trained for a race or have just, uh, some of you maybe like to run. Um, and if you've ever ran at least a 5k you can identify with this passage of scripture this morning however if when you think of running you get tired you may have some trouble relating you may be like well I'm just exhausted read about running and and you may you may have some difficulty this morning Uh, however we use the running metaphor because this is what our text uses as it relates to the Christian life, to a long-distance endurance race. So if you're a couch potato, but you've at least seen a race, maybe, maybe you've watched it on TV, then you can still somewhat relate to this passage this morning. This is not the first time that the author of Hebrews uh, spoke to his readers about endurance. Back in chapter 10, verse 36, He told them that they 
had need of endurance, so that when they had done the will of God, they may receive what was promised. He follows that up by writing a whole chapter that is devoted to the Old Testament saints who endured in their faith, although they did not receive the promise of Christ, which we have received. And now he returns to endurance by saying, we have this great cloud of witnesses from the Old Testament and Jesus himself, who is the penultimate example of endurance, since he endured horrible suffering by faith. He endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And so what we see here is that we need to run this race of our Christian faith with endurance. While we are doing so, we need to consider Jesus. So first, I want us to see this morning that the Christian life is a difficult endurance race that must be ran. The Christian life is a difficult endurance race that must be ran. The Christian life is not a sprint, but it's a slow endurance race. It's more like a marathon. Modern evangelicalism has succumbed to this notion that the Christian life is like a sprint. And the reason being is that we have summed the Christian experience up into a prayer. And so people will say, I have given my life to Christ numerous times throughout my life. Or, or I asked Jesus into my heart every single night however the christian life is a lifelong marathon it's not a sprint where we say a one-time prayer and then we're done that's not what the what sums up the christian life we don't say oh well i said this prayer once and that's it that's the end of my christian life that's not what the scripture teaches us the author has just finished giving us the hall of faith and then he says Therefore, and tells us that as Christians, we should think of ourselves as being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And this cloud of witnesses bears testimony to faith in the Lord. And if you are a believer, he says this is, this is the context in which we would see or we should see ourselves. We should see ourselves surrounded by by a cloud of witnesses. In other words, this is our audience. Our faith is lived out in an arena that is filled with God's beloved people, those who are faithful of all ages. And now you run your race and you go through this marathon to the sounds of their approval and encouragement. This cloud of witnesses are the heroes of the faith from chapter 11. They're not dead men to be remembered but living witnesses to be heard i love what john owen says when he writes all the saints of the old testament as it were stand looking on us and are striving encouraging us unto our duty and ready to testify unto our success with their applause they are placed about us unto this end we are compassed with them the christian life is a grueling lifelong race there are steep hills to come there are rough roads to go down and to make it to the end you need self-discipline you need to get into shape you must have motivation you must endure no one ever signs up for a marathon with the thoughts of dropping out of the marathon they all want to finish well finishing well is everything 
in the race. In this race, you're not in a race of your Christian life with competition of other believers. We're all in the same team. We are against the enemies of God's kingdom, but we're in a noble company of people. We are surrounded by those who will spend eternity with us. So, yes, it is a difficult race that must be ran, but take heart because the saints are cheering you on. Hear their voices and conform to the pattern of their faith, not the pattern of this world. And so this, this Christian life is a difficult endurance race that must be ran. But secondly, all runners must get into shape and stay in shape. All runners must get into shape and stay in shape. Whether you recognize it or not, when you decide to run any race that requires endurance, you have to get into shape. The likelihood of you waking up one morning, having never run in your life, and deciding to go out and run a marathon, and then finishing that marathon is slim. When you decide to run a marathon, you train. You spend time building up to the distance you want to run. You do speed work. Maybe you do some hill work, and and you train to get ready to get in shape, and then Hopefully, if you want to continue running, you stay in shape. And then the same is true of the Christian life. Now, to train for a marathon, it takes self-discipline. And to train for the Christian life, it takes self-discipline. The goal is that you will finish well. Now, this passage lays out two specific things that must be done to discipline ourselves. First, we must lay aside every weight, it says. Lay aside every weight. Some translations will use hindrance, and what it is referring to is any impediment that interferes with or delays your progress. Perhaps you've heard of this term, excess baggage. That is what I like to think of. Not every hindrance or weight is a sin. It's excess baggage. In fact, what is a hindrance to you may not be a hindrance to another person. The Greek athletes used to run naked. Don't try to picture that, but that's what they did. So as not to have anything that weighed them down. When I ran cross country, I used to see these guys shaving their legs. I didn't understand it. I'm like, how much does hair weigh? But they would shave their legs when they ran cross country. They they wanted nothing to slow them down. Nothing that might drain energy from them. Can you imagine watching the Boston Marathon on TV and seeing some guy there at the front of the pack and he has a backpack filled with soda and Twinkies just in case he, you know, wants a soda or Twinkie in the middle of the marathon? That would make no sense because he's not laying aside his weight. Like I said, this weight is not sin. It is not things that are necessarily even wrong but they, are, but they are wrong because they keep you from running as you should, but may not keep someone else from running as they should. For some people, this could be a friendship. It could be a habit. It could be an association. It can be a, an event. It could be a pleasure, maybe some entertainment. It could be considered good by some people, but it's dragging you down. 
And therefore, you must lay it aside. It could be as simple as a place you need to avoid because that place drags you down. So let me get specific. You wake up in the morning and you don't have time to read your Bible, but you watch the news or something else before you head out the door. What do you choose? You you can't do them both. But you choose something besides your Bible. Some people say, "But I, but I need to, I need to do this. Fill in the blank before I start my day." No, what you need is Jesus before you start your day. What you need is more of Jesus before you begin. Or maybe you don't have time to read it all because you refuse to get up ten minutes earlier to do so. And you need to drop the weight of loving sleep more than God. It could be entertainment. This is hard for me because I struggle with this one because honestly I, I like to play games on my iPad and, and it allows me to check out. And if I'm doing that at the expense of my time with the Lord, if I say, well, God, I, I, don't, I don't have time to spend with you today. Then I have to lay that aside. I hear Christians say all the time they don't have time to read their Bible or pray. And yet they have time for all kinds of other stuff. They have time to do all kinds of other things. But they don't have time to read their Bible or pray. Their weekend is their recreation time. I've heard that before. So if it means, well, I have to miss church because this is my recreation time. That's okay. If you want to run the race, you must get in shape by shedding the weight. Some people ask, well, what's wrong with a movie or playing games or music or whatever? And the answer is nothing really. The question is not not, uh, what's, what's wrong with it. The question is, does it hinder my relationship with the Lord? Is it keeping me from spending time with Him? Is it affecting the way I run the race? And if it is, then I need to get rid of it by laying it aside. If you have something that's keeping you from living your life to full capacity for the Lord, it may not be sin, but it's keeping you from living your life to full capacity for the Lord. This passage says, get rid of it. Lay it aside. But here's the thing. Because, you know, as Christians, sometimes we like to, you know, pretend like we know what's best for everybody else. What you need to lay aside may not be what somebody else needs to lay aside. And as a believer, you have no right to demand that someone else rid themselves of what hinders you. You have no right. So if it's not sinful, because this this happens in Christian circles a lot, especially in church circles. So I, I have something that hinders me. It's not sinful, but it hinders me. And then I go demand that you get rid of it in your life. You have no right to do that. Okay? So what hinders you, you get rid of. Don't worry about that other person. Because it may not be hindering them at all. But if it hinders you, get rid of it. And you know what that is. So lay aside every weight. But then he gets real personal, right? Because he says, lay aside every sin. This sin is described here as that which clings so closely. This is an excellent description of what sin does. It clings closely to us. And 
devours us devours us we have example of this in nature the sundew plant waits for a fly to land on one of its leaves to taste one of the glands that grows there and instantly the plant has these crimson tipped finger-like hairs that touch the fly's wings and they hold it in a sticky grasp and the fly struggles to get free and the more the fly struggles the more it's coated with this adhesive and soon the fly relaxes in the mind of the fly it could be worse because the fly extends its tongue and begins to feast on the sweetness of the sundew plant however the fly is held more firmly by more sticky tentacles and when the fly is entirely at the mercy of the plant the edges of the leaf fold inward forming a closed fist and two hours later the fly is an empty sucked skin And the hungry fist unfolds and waits for another easy fly to come in and cling to it. This, my friends, is sin. It sticks close to you. And it sucks the life out of you. Now this is not referring to only certain sins, but let's face it. We have certain sins that cling closer to us than others. Some sins that strongly tempt others do not appeal at all to us, and vice versa. Some people struggle with pride, but not everyone. Lust could be a sin that some struggle with often, but not everyone. Greed and anger and grumbling and gossip and selfishness, discontentment, all are sins that some struggle with more than others, and they they all originate within our heart and our thoughts how often do we drink down the sweet deadly nectar of sin not realizing it's really a rot to our soul and we must cut it off and in our thought life and let it go no further and rid ourselves of sin if we entertain them then they will develop into sinful actions what sin clings closely to you today maybe it's covetousness maybe it's envy Maybe it's criticism. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's hatred. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's unthankfulness. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's lack of self-control. Maybe it's ungodliness. Discontentment. Selfishness. Frustration. Impatience or irritability. Worldliness. I picked that list intentionally because often we don't think of those things as sin. Whatever sin it is, the point of the author that he's trying to make is you can't run the Christian race if you're constantly tripping over your sin. It must be stripped away and left behind. You must identify that sin in your life and get rid of that sin and help you to run the race that is set before you and so we see this idea that all runners must get into shape and they must stay into shape thirdly all runners must run with endurance all runners must run with endurance this word endurance appears several times in the letter to hebrews jesus endured the cross he also endured hostility from sinners against him if we are to follow in his steps endurance is vital we will experience opposition and pain and suffering and rejection just like jesus did this demands the demands of the christian life are rigorous and we must endure more 
And we're going to see more on that in just a moment. But notice two specific things. First, God sets the course. God sets the course. The course is already mapped out for you. When you go and run a marathon, you don't get to just make up your own course. They have it mapped out and marked for you. And now they even have it so people can track you from hundreds of miles away and know your course. If you run off course, you'll be disqualified. The race is set before us, it says. That's what the, that's what the author of Hebrews says. The race is set before you. God is the sovereign one who has set the course for each and every one of us. Just as he has set the course for Jesus. It is important to remember the course is unique to the runner. Some courses are straight. Some have turns. Some may seem relatively flat. Others seem like they're uphill all the way. Some are longer than others, but the glory is that we can finish the race that's marked out for us. And I may not, may not be able to run your course, and you may not run my course, but we can finish our own race. And we can finish well. One of the keys to finishing is to keep in mind at all times that God sovereignly has set your course. You may struggle with parts of the course, and you may not even like parts of the course. And you may even be prone to grumble about the course, wondering, why did I have to run this hill? But keep in mind that God has sovereignly planned your course. And you will not be able to run it and finish it well by faith unless you submit your will to His will. You say, God, you have sovereignly set my course and I will run this race that you have given to me. Not only does God set the course, but we must run with endurance, it says. If anyone is ever going to run with endurance, it requires a certain mindset. If you think you're running a sprint and you're in a marathon, you're going to have all kinds of problems. And you will quit early. You do not set out to run a marathon without building up your endurance. Before I ran my marathon, I ran 20 miles at least three times. Before I ran, I tried to increase what is known as as your VO2 max, which is the amount of oxygen your body can use during intense exercise. You go into the race knowing endurance is a key. Jesus talked about counting the cost before following him in Luke chapter 14. Before you make some hasty commitment to be a Christian, you think about it. Are, are you willing to put in the effort, the sweat, the endurance that it requires for you to go the distance? If not, then don't even start the race because you're going to look pretty bad when you drop out at the beginning of the race. In 1981, a man by the name of Bull or Bill Broadhurst entered the Pepsi Challenge. It was a 10,000-meter race in Omaha, Nebraska. Ten years before, Bill had an aneurysm in the brain, which had left him paralyzed on the left side. Now here he was on a misty July morning. He stood there with 1,200 fit men and women at the starting line. The gun sounds. The crowd surges. And Bill throws his stiff left leg forward, pivots on it, As his foot hits the ground, 
and then places his other foot in front. The pack races off, and there's Bill in the back. Plop, plop, plop. The rhythm almost mocking him. Sweat rolls down his face. Pain pierces his ankle ankle with every single step, but he keeps going. Some of the runners finish the race in 30 minutes. But two hours and 19 minutes later, Bill reached the finish line. A man approached him from a small group of people that remained. And even though Bill was exhausted, he recognized the man as Bill Rogers, a famous marathon runner. Rogers took his newly won medal and draped it around Broadhurst's neck. Though he finished last, Broadhurst finished And it was just as glorious as Rogers' finish because he endured. A key to running the race with endurance is motivation. But where will our motivation come from? There are two motivating factors when running this race, the author gives us. The second is greater than the first. But our motivation has to come from somewhere. So our motivation... To run comes from those who have run before us and primarily from Jesus. Our motivation to run comes from those who have ran before us and primarily from Jesus. When you set out to run a race, you have some motivation. For me, I knew I was not going to win because I just wasn't. But I didn't want to just finish, so I had a motivation. I wanted to average a 10-minute mile for the marathon I didn't make it I was close, very close but that was my motivation during the race apart from my motivation uh, I also got some motivation from the crowd there are two motivations given here first, we are motivated to keep running by the great cloud of witnesses the opening of chapter 12 refers us back to chapter 11 all the Old Testament saints who had endured all sorts of trials by faith, motivate us to keep on going when we feel like quitting. The word cloud was a Greek metaphor for multitude, like this. These aren't real people, but this multitude. As we are running our race along our route, we're going to encounter both Old and New Testament saints and other heroes of faith. And they're calling out to us by their example of faith keep going their example says i made it and you can make it as well and it we must hear that the reward's worth it don't stop don't quit the finish line is not too far ahead listen this is a great motivator when you are in the race it's a great motivator to have other people that you know are cheering you on. I know for me, right before mile 25, my body began to shut down and I started to walk and I remember physically, physically crying at that point and praying, God, help me finish. I'm going to look silly if I drop out of the race at, at mile 25. And I remember coming up to spot and there's all these people that I didn't even know cheering and yelling and calling my name but my mind wasn't working so i was like how do they know my name not realizing it was on my tag but anyway um calling my name and it motivated me to finish well 
I would encourage you, study characters in the Bible, great men and women of faith who have ran the race, and you'll see how they feel, failed so that you can make, can't make the same mistakes or don't make the same mistakes, and you will learn how they ran so well, and you can, you can imitate their faith because many of the battles they fought, you will fight as well. I would encourage you to read biographies of great men and women of faith so you can read of their struggles and how it is that they ran so well. There is a cloud of witnesses to encourage us, to motivate us, to tell you, keep running. But we should take the time to know their stories. But this is not where the greatest motivation comes from because the greatest motivation comes from Jesus. Jesus motivates us to run. The text tells us how to run with endurance, the race that is set before us by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The faith that is needed for us to endure, Jesus is the founder of it, and he will bring it to perfection and completion. The author of Hebrews deliberately uses the name Jesus here instead of Christ so that we focus on the humanity of Jesus As a man, Jesus showed us exactly how to live by faith in God. Jesus is the initiator of all faith. Therefore, we must look to him. He trusted God his entire life. In the beginning of his ministry, when tempted by Satan, he's trusting God. In fact, he trusts so much that he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does... The Son does likewise. Additionally, he claims to speak the very word that he had heard from the Father in John 8, 38. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he trusted the Father and went to the cross, entrusting his soul to the Father. His final words were, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. From start to finish, Jesus trusted the Father. Now the text reveals some great truths about Jesus for us so that we know that Jesus motivates us to run one Jesus is the founder of our faith we saw the same word back in Hebrews 2:10 which said that God perfected the founder of our salvation through suffering it's also used in Acts 3:15 where it says and you killed the author of life it is the same exact greek word the word is used as both the source of life salvation and faith but it also used to refer to the leader or captain the one that goes before the troops showing them the way in fact it really means trailblazer all this is true of jesus in regards to our faith no sinner is ever capable of believing in christ for salvation unless christ grants it but also he blazes the trail of faith for everyone to follow him he goes before us and he shows us how to live by faith in god not only is he the founder of our faith but jesus it says is the perfecter of our faith jesus perfectly finished the course and therefore shows us how to finish well but not only that he brings our faith to a completion this is what paul states in philippians 1 6 and i am sure of this and he who that began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's the founder of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. 
He is more than that. We also see that we need to focus on Jesus' attitude. Focus on Jesus' attitude. The verse says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The reason that Jesus was able to endure the cross was because of his focus. It was on the joy that was set before him. Some people would say, yeah, that is because Jesus was divine. But that is wrong thinking because Jesus was not only divine, he was fully man as well. In fact, it could be argued that Jesus therefore felt more pain than we could possibly imagine because he was truly God and truly man. And so he felt pain that we can't even comprehend or understand. And so we must let that sink in when it says that he endured the cross. There was both a physical pain and a spiritual pain. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. How could he do such a thing? How could he do that? Because of the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him was the glorification of the Father by completing the work that he had him to do. But not only that, he would be exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father. He would return to heaven triumphant over Satan and sin and death and hell. And the angels rejoiced. All things are under his feet. And he is bringing many sons to glory. This was all set before him which enabled him to endure the cross. Which tells us that we must focus on Jesus. We focus on him as the founder of our faith the perfecter of our faith, and we focus on the joy that is set before us that one day we will be with him forever. Not only that, but consider Jesus' Jesus's example through the most difficult trial. It says he endured the cross. Despising the shame, he endured for sinners such hostility against himself. No one has ever endured what Jesus went through. Others have been crucified, and others have gone through terrible torture and indescribable pain. But Jesus is the only one who knew the glory and the joy of perfect fellowship with God the Father in heaven before coming to this this earth. Only Jesus was perfectly holy. Only Jesus left heaven and took on the form of a servant and was obedient to death on the cross for the substitute of our sins. Consider the example of Jesus. Even though the greatest of trials that he went through, he remained obedient even to death. Yet you and I struggle so often with just simple obedience. But Jesus was obedient even to death. Fifthly, Jesus reveals the final reward of faith. Look at the final reward Jesus Reveals. Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is in the most exalted place in all of the universe. He's in the place of all rule and authority. Angels bow before him and reverence and adore him. Though Jesus is uniquely qualified, we see in his exaltation just a glimpse of the glory that we will share throughout eternity but we have to run the race with endurance we have to run the race with endurance so I ask are you doing that today are you running the race with endurance lastly 
We must run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We must run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, when you're running long distances, you have a tendency to, after so long, you, you start to drop your head. And you start looking at the ground. And you're doing this as you're running. And it's not real, it's, it's not good to be looking at the ground. That's what we do sometimes. Instead of keeping your head up, focusing on something in the distance. When you drop your head, it decreases your oxygen intake. And you begin to lose focus. Spiritually, we must have our eyes fixed on something, and that something is Jesus. So let us know a few things about fixing our eyes on Jesus. We must, in order to fix our eyes on Jesus, we must stop looking at self and look to Jesus. If we're going to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, that means we can't have our eyes fixed on ourselves. When verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the meaning is literally to look off to or to look without distraction. The idea is that you're taking your eyes off of other things and you're focusing on Jesus alone. This is why we are told in Scripture to examine and see if we are in the faith and why we are told to examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do here in a little bit. We are not to live with our focus on self, but our focus is to be on Jesus Christ. It is good to get into the daily practice of examining your heart and saying, God, reveal in my life any sin that I need to confess to you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, all that you are is in Christ. Fix your eyes on him. Secondly, we must trust all that Jesus is for us. Sometimes it may be difficult for us to understand, but as followers of Christ, we are in Christ, the scripture says. We sometimes use all kinds of descriptive words to define who we are, right? We say, well, I'm a father, or I'm a husband, or I'm a Uh, salesman or I'm a nurse or whatever it might be and that that can be fine but all those things can be taken away from you you can lose your job and then you're no longer that you can lose your wife and then I mean you're technically still a husband but she's not here anymore you can lose those things You know what you can't lose? Christ. And so as followers of Christ, we are in Christ. That's who we are. This is the picture of baptism, right? When we are identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's so vital to our faith. When Satan tempts us, we remind him that we are in Christ. And his blood has covered our sin. And we claim the promises of God and we claim them. The reason we claim the promises of God is because we are in Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Scripture tells us. We must focus on the truth of God's word and trust all that Jesus is for us. Don't doubt who Jesus is. Understand, Christian, that in Christ defines you. 
in Christ to find you. You're not, well, I'm just a dirty, rotten, filthy, no good for nothing sinner. No! You're in Christ. That's what defines you. Thirdly, we must trust him when we are wronged. We must trust him when we are wrong. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus endured from sinners such hostility against himself. One of the hardest things for us to do is to trust in Jesus when others have wronged you. Someone wrongs you and you just want to get even. Or you want to go sulk in it and get angry and like take a bath in the wrongness that they did. Oh, I just want to lay in all this filth and I just want to be bitter and I want to be angry at the whole world. Some of y'all act like someone peeing your Cheerios every morning because it's just, your attitude is so like, oh, someone's wronged me and my life is terrible. You got to trust in Jesus. When it says, consider at the beginning of verse 3. It is to think about actively and with careful precision. We must carefully think about the fact that the more committed we are to Christ, the more people are going to oppose you. And no matter how nice you may try to be, no matter, oh, I treated this person really nice and they were just hateful to me and, and they were mean to me and, and this person said this about me and I don't think this person likes me and blah, 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 blah. But we consider that against the joy of being obedient to Christ and we realize that the joy of obedience to Christ is far greater than all of the rejection that you may face, than all of the anger that you may face, than all the ridicule that you may face. The joy is found in obedience. And so it doesn't matter when someone wrongs you because your joy is not found in that person, Christian. Your joy is found in your obedience to Jesus Christ. We realize that Jesus was wronged. Nobody's ever going to wrong you as much as Jesus was wronged. And you and I will be wronged. Somebody's going to say something incredibly stupid to you. And you're going to be like, I can't even believe they said that. And they're going to do just ridiculous things sometimes. But we trust in Him in the midst of being wronged. Lastly, we refuse, we must refuse to lose heart. We must refuse to lose heart. Look at verse 3. He endured all this from sinners so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This year has been riddled with so many moral and spiritual failures from prominent leaders. Over and over again, Bill Hybels, Paige Patterson, Frank Page, Alvin Reed, the list goes on and on. Pastor after pastor, leader after leader, failing. Church, spiritual failure in your life happens gradually from continuous weakening. Spiritual failure does not happen overnight. And it is the regular exercise of your faith that will keep you from failing spiritually. 
If your faith fails to be operative and your mind is left to cope with all the trials that you face, and if you decide, well, I'm going to put my mind to it and I'm going to I'm going to help myself out of this problem or I'm going to think my way out of this problem, and if you think that that's going to work, you're in a whole heap of trouble. Because you will eventually grow weary and lose heart and you will fail. The lack of exercise of our faith will cause cause our heart to grow cold and we'll say, what am I going to do now? So be aware, church. Exercise your faith. Things like block parties and vacation Bible schools. You think we do that just to be like, oh, we feel real good about ourselves. It's a chance for you to exercise your faith. A runner in a marathon who has not conditioned themselves will slow down and they will eventually collapse. So will every single believer who refuses to look to Jesus. We must exercise our faith in Jesus Christ. Some people call it burnout. And the Christian landscape is riddled with many who have grown weary, who have lost heart. Pastor after pastor, leader after leader, Christian after Christian who loses heart and just gives up and says, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm done. I can't do it. Who fail because their faith has failed. I'll be the first one to tell you, church, if I fail as a pastor, it's because my faith has failed. Because I haven't exercised my faith. Plain and simple. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. If you look to me and you say, Pastor has failed, it's because I haven't exercised my faith. And I don't mean fail like I'm not doing what you want me to do. I mean like a failure, like a moral failure or something along those lines. It's because I'm not exercising my faith, and yet we can see leaders and people who, can, who have failed because they're not exercising their faith. This Christian marathon will only be run when we properly exercise our faith. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. So in conclusion, I conclude this morning by giving you some application. First, if in reflection of your Christian life, you know that you've grown weary. Perhaps you're sitting there today and you say, I have grown weary. Then perhaps you need to lay aside something that is weighing you down. Or some sin. If you are sitting there going, I am weary. I don't know if I can go on. This Christian life is a struggle. I've been there. i got to lay something aside. So maybe you need to look and lay aside some sort of weight 
or some sin that is hindering you. If you're trying to carry around some weight that hinders you or some sin and still run the race of faith, you're going to have a problem. You will grow weary. And so I would encourage you, lay aside whatever it is that's hindering you from growth and godliness. Secondly, perhaps you are grumbling and complaining about your course that you're on. And you're, oh, I can't stand this course, and why do I have this, and why am I going through this, and I can't believe this and that and the other. I was talking to a lady yesterday who said, well, my dad calls me a church hopper. And, she, you know, she laid out some things. She said, well, is your church, uh, does your church have cliques in it and that sort of thing? And I was, I was like, I don't think so. I don't know. You know, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Hard telling. But invite her to come. As you're going through your course, perhaps you're grumbling and complaining about the course that you're on. Would you remember that God has set the course for you? And you may look at other Christians and say, and, and see their course, and so they seem to be living a life of blessing while you beg for crumbs. And you think, well, that's not fair. Why do they have it made and I don't? And I would say that you need to submit to the sovereign plan of God in your life. And you need to understand that he sets different courses for different people. For his children, according to his purpose, not your purpose. And you can't run someone else's course, but you sure can run yours. Because he's laid it out for you. And he's laid it out for you for his good and for your, glo- or for your good and for his glory. Thirdly. Maybe you need to fix your eyes on Jesus and get focused on him so that you can run your race with joy. If you focus on this world or the things of the world, you will not have joy in the race of faith. Know the crown of righteousness is promised to all who finish the course. Fix your eyes on Jesus and get Focused on Him so that you can run your race with joy. If you're focused on other things, church, stop. Focus on Jesus. Lastly, there is no way, there is no way for you to run the race if you've never entered it. There's no way for you to run the race if you never entered the race. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then you're not even in the race, and you can't run it. And if you don't enter the race and run with endurance, then you will not get the prize. And so I would challenge you to enter the race this morning. Surrender your life to Christ. If you're sitting there saying, I've never surrendered my life to Christ as Savior and Lord, then today is the day for you to do it and get in the race today. Maybe the Lord has spoken to you this morning. I want to give you a chance to respond. If you need prayer, I'd be glad to pray with you. If you want to pray on your own, you can certainly do that. If you need to come forward and say, Pastor, I want to, I want to give my life to Christ, then I will, I will talk to you briefly and we'll t- we can talk later on. But maybe the Lord's spoken to you this morning. We're going to sing two verses of this song, and then after that we're going to go right into our communion. But I'm going to be down here and I invite you to come if you need to respond to this message this morning. Let's pray.